This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. All right, everybody. Uh, this is Razib Khan. I am here with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here with Mark Safransky, uh, who is the, uh, I don't want to say mastermind, but kind of the mastermind behind Zen Pundit, which is a long-term blog that's been around for, I think, 20 years now. And uh, that's kind of how I know Mark in terms of, uh, you know, I started blogging around 2002, and so I was around back then, um, you know, in the days of yore, in the ancient days. Uh, but, um, you know, so we've known each other online for a long time. And I want, was thinking about um, just people that I have engaged with over the years and who um, I've never had a discussion with like this. And so uh, you were one of the people. And so I reached out. Um, you know, there's going to be, uh, for the listeners out there, there'll be some, um, you know, uh, you will notice people who have like long, long internet uh, footprints uh, coming on this podcast i think a little bit more the next year uh, that's one of my plans because i think there's a lot of people out there um who've been doing things for a long time and you know putting their voice out there their thoughts their ideas and um you know just this is another another um venue we're not doing a tiktok here we're not that advanced uh very gen x elder geriatric millennial podcasting right um so <laughs> we're not we're not going so far you know no live streams here um, but you know, I want to talk about some of the things you're interested in. So Zen Pundit is a blog that's been focused on foreign policy, uh, military affairs, that sort of thing, international relations. Uh, I've seen it over the years, um, in terms of commentary and obviously it's, um, mostly disjoint, I would say with the type of type of stuff that I focus on and write about, but you know, we both come out of that same early era of 2002, 2003, 2004. And no matter what you did as, uh, you know, let's say you're like narrow focus specialty, it was hard to avoid touching on Iraq and, uh, you know, our nation at war. Um, some of you youngsters out there don't know what I'm talking about, uh, aside from the history books or maybe the documentaries or the YouTubes that you've seen. Uh, but, you know, there was a whole zeitgeist, you know, uh, back then, and we were all part of it. Um, you know, it was, you know, not totally ideologically polarized, I would say. There was a few doves, but really it was what type of hawk were you and, um, you know, what should we invade and who should we invade, you know? <laughs> so that was the whole thing. And maybe we'll get to that later. But um, I want to start out actually, um, you know, as we're recording, um, there is the Israeli invasion of Gaza. Yes. And um, there is basically, I think, the biggest set piece type battles since World War II, maybe the Korean War, I don't know. Um, in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region. Uh, so yeah. a lot of stuff is going on. And, um, you know, back 20 years ago with Donald Rumsfeld, you know, there was this idea of kind of like this technological uh, advanced warfare with a lighter infantry footprint, maybe. Um, we had some ideas. Uh, I wasn't, you know, deeply involved in the technical or the, uh, the literature, so to speak. But, you know, I did superficially... Uh, run into this sort of stuff and you know we are in 2023 um i have a supercomputer uh, in my pocket all the time 
as opposed to, you know, back in back in um 2002, I had a I think it was like some um was it it was a Samsung flip phone of some sort though. It was Samsung, but it was a flip phone and it had um like I'm making a gesture like you guys will not cuz we don't we're not doing a video on this. Uh you guys will not see but you know, I had to like pull open like an antenna. That's what I had to do back then. It was before it was before the Nokia phone. So, you know, we have so much technology now and yet um you know, in Ukraine, uh, they're in trench warfare, and then it seems like the 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 operation the Israelis are doing um, is pretty old school in a lot of ways. Like I know that they have, um, you know, they have you know those rockets that do that intercept the dumb the dumb bombs that the Hamas throws at them or Hezbollah. But you know, when it comes to going into Gaza, it seems pretty old school. So I guess the question um, that I have for you um, is like, let's you know, and I I put this in the notes, like bracket between. 9-11 to 10-7. Um, oh. The main thing that I'm thinking is like, how's warfare changed? Um, the main thing that I'm going to bring up right now is like that I, as like a, as a layperson, can think of is um, drones, which was mm -hmm. wonder weapons. Yeah. Uh, Bob Woodward first wrote about them uh, in the 2000s. And now, uh, like, I see drones around. Like, I see drones around in Austin. Dr drones actually go back to World War One. Uh, the first drones were used on the Western Front. Uh, real primitive uh, uh, aircraft, essentially, to be a dumb bomb. So it, it's an old technology that's been refined and, and stabilized and and made increasingly um, miniaturized and precise. So you're seeing right now in Ukraine, um, you're seeing soldiers doing a lot of screening with netting and metal wire. It's an attempt to prevent some of these micro drones from getting close enough to essentially be a flying grenade and, and kill you. Um, the, the learning curve is, is, is um, somebody like John Robb would talk about is really fast right now in places like Ukraine, because both sides are, especially the Ukrainians are attempting to innovate on the fly. And that's where you see your greatest creativity, um, in tactical warfare is when, is when people who are actually fighting are making those jerry-rigged adjustments or people close to the line who have engineering capacity. They're trying things out um, and seeing if they work, uh, experimental weapons in the field. Um, we also did that during Vietnam and it, it didn't work out quite so well for us when we we're doing that. But the Ukrainians and other groups that are often irregular do seem to be very effective because they have to be. Um, it's it's existential for them at that level to to prevail over the near enemy who see maybe two hundred yards away from them. So yeah, well, so I mean, I guess um, you know what I'm wondering about is um, the pervasiveness of information technology. You know, um, there used to be walkie talkies and other things, but um, you know, everyone's got cell phones in the early days of the Ukraine war, um, Donbass war, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of talk about how they were using Starlink. They were using Western information technology uh, to really coordinate in a way that the Russians could not because the Russians were not as advanced. Although a little skeptical of that because, you know, cell phone technology is pretty widespread and they're pretty cheap and commoditized. So I'm not sure if it was the technology or the institutional abilities. But in any case, setting that aside, um, over the last, you know, 20 years, like let's say literally 20 years, 2003 to 2023, um, how has information technology changed uh warfare on the ground like if you're an infantryman uh if you're a tank guy you know i mean 
I'm assuming that they have they have probably the internet, right? They have the internet. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you bring this up with the 2000 um, in one piece because going uh, Rumsfeld, my aunt worked for him, by the way, uh, for many, many years. So I have some family insight into the way he operates. But he was very enchanted with the idea of a revolution in military affairs. And in particular, um, which is an idea that goes back to the to the mid-1970s. Um, he was particularly enchanted with, with an advisor, uh, Admiral Sabrowski. And Sabrowski had come up with uh, a theory of network-centric warfare, where you would be able to, and he was looking ahead because the technology was not as robust or as widespread as it is today, because this is in around 1998, he was writing this paper, that you would be able to essentially empower everyone down the chain of command to act more rapidly, more autonomously through the sharing of information. And Rumsfeld liked that because it would allow him to reform the Defense Department um, to make it lighter, faster, lethal, lead more lethal, more mobile um, than it had been at that time. These plans were partially implemented, but when 9-11 happened, um, that uh, a lot of the transformation plans had to be set aside for dealing with the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq. So Sabrowski foresaw all of this, but going into how long counterinsurgency wars uh, delayed the adaptation of, of maximizing this technology by the U.S. military. And what was adapted was used in exactly the wrong way which was to centralize decision-making at a far remove from where the ground truth was happening. Essentially, the hierarchy, big army used that to restrain and control even down to the squad level. Sometimes in Afghanistan, you would have a major general who was playing captain uh, instead of attending to general things because the technology made it possible for him to, quote, ride along. In fact, the, the president, President Obama and his close advisors rode along on the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. They were right there on, on, on video the whole way. They weren't exercising command, fortunately, but they were there essentially in the room with the shooters and operators who were attacking bin Laden's compound. Okay, I want to actually, um, as you're talking about this uh, and kind of um, how 9-11 it sounds like it short-circuited or at least uh, interfered with some of the natural organic development that you're talking about. I hear terms like fourth-generation and fifth-generation warfare. I don't really know what these generations are. Can you go from first to fifth? Uh, well, if, this is a theory that was developed by a guy named William Lind. Uh, William Lind was an associate, one of many associates, of a strategist named John Boyd. And John Boyd was an Air Force uh, colonel who had been originally, if you probably watched the Top Gun movies, uh, Boyd coming out of the Korean War was was one of the first Top Gun instructors. And his job was essentially to to assess why we were not doing so well in the Korean War against uh, against the Soviets, because they were flying the North Korean planes, why they were shooting down so many American planes. So through many years of iteration, he came up with a, 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 
a strategy, which is generally known, you've probably seen it, the OODA loop um, about orientation, observation, orientation, decision, action, feedback loop. Uh, you will gain an advantage over the enemy if you can go through this decision cycle faster and deeper than your opponent. Boyd's acolytes, the people around him, went in different directions um, after the Cold War. And William Lind, who had worked for Senator Gary Hart um, as an arms and military defense advisor, which is odd because William Lind is very right wing and Gary Hart was not. But um, he was postulating this idea that there were four um, essential generations of warfare. And the uh, the first generation warfare, which which would be the close order drill uh, of early, you know, musket fighting, Gustavus Adolphus and, and people in the cabinet wars of the 18th century where the muskets had to line up shoulder to shoulder in order to be an effective firing weapon. And it required a lot of discipline. Uh, going into second generation, which would then be the static defensive warfare of the Western Front, uh, or what Lind referred to as that, all that French crap. Uh, third generation warfare, which you know, in layman's parlance would be blitzkrieg, a combined armed motorized assault planes. And then fourth generation warfare, um, it, it's not exactly guerrilla warfare in Lind's thinking. It was, and also another uh, Israeli military historian named Martin Van Krevel also was a major contributor to this idea. The idea behind fourth generation warfare is you had these regular fighters who were not trying to do what uh, Maoist guerrillas had done, which is have a revolution and seize the state, but to essentially uh, destroy the state and either replace it with nothing or carve out an autonomous zone of operation where the fourth generation warfare group could pursue whatever its ideological or, or economic aims. So you can fold in a lot of kind of religious groups, uh, ethno sectarian groups, criminal insurgencies all fit under this fourth generation um, rubric. And it seemed to really fit the moment uh, of Al Qaeda and other non-state actors being able to make strategic attacks on, on even a superpower like the United States and, and have far-reaching political strategic effects from these attacks. Um, Lynn's theory was not well-liked by, I would say, the orthodox um, thinkers in the U.S. military. And there are some problems with it because it's a historically flawed theory, but it's a nice concept for, for organizing different forms of tactical warfare. Um, the fourth generation people got a lot of things right about the trend of where warfare was going. Uh, fifth generation warfare is, a, and I was involved in this, so, so as a, one of the people thinking about it, was an attempt to come up with ways that could balk or smother or suppress fourth generation insurgents like, like Al-Qaeda. Um, it wasn't terribly coherent though there were some good ideas with me uh and i i one of the books that i contributed to has an outline on this for me the answers uh are not very satisfying because one of the answers to deal with this sort of a of a political group that isn't seeking to replace the state but is destabilizing society completely is genocide uh 
to crush one of these groups, um, the state takes off the gloves and really does everything they can to shred the social networks uh, of whatever subpopulation is supporting the group. And there's quite a bit of historical evidence that shows different regimes have done this with this purpose in mind. Um, even Stalin's purges, which look entirely random, and there was a large random element to it, had certain targeted uh, populations within it, uh, ethnic Poles, um, Chechens, members of certain pre-revolutionary parties, where the lethality um, was upwards of 90%. So this is a tactic that a regime that is not very technically sophisticated or has a lot of financial resources can implement. Um, you don't need to be an advanced industrial society to implement this type of a strategy. The other way to do it, but actually we saw something similar. We, we saw this in Sri Lanka with uh, the crushing of the Tamil tigers. Um, they, they crushed a lot of Tamils with the tigers in order to end that war. It, it works most of the time. Um, the other way is the American way of war with massive surveillance and traditional counterinsurgency tactics and, and building up power centers um, in the society that can handle the fourth generation warfare or insurgent group. It requires an awful lot of money uh, to fight a war that way. And, and not many countries are willing to foot that bill. My Substack, I did write about, um, I did write about the the Zunger genocide uh, in the 18th century, and that's basically um, what you're talking about. Insofar as the the Manchu dynasty, the Qing decided, look, these people keep rebelling. We get rid of the people, no more rebellions. <laughs> I mean, and so they got rid of the people, you know. So northern Xinjiang is not Mongol. It's not Oirat. It's not Zungar anymore uh, because they got rid of them. You know, yeah. they eliminated them, um, you know. And with pre-modern, you know, genocides, uh, you know, it's not like they need to round them up industrially. You just like people just starve, you know. Um, they can't really just survive out in the wild in the elements. You harass them. And that, that's one thing I read. Um, it was, uh, was one of the books about the new world where like so many people starved because they were sick or there was just these disturbances and warfare, you can't plant your crops, you know, yeah. when you're at Malthusian limit, you're done, you know? Yes. People don't have, like, massive storehouses. They can't go to Costco to stock up, you know? Yes. It's just, like, think about it. Like, they're always on the edge. So um, I think that's one thing to consider. Um, I want to ask you, though, uh, Mark, uh, just going back to, like, what I wanted to start out with in terms of how things have changed. Um, yeah, like, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example, not related to, uh, you know, your... Your competencies, but like for example, the 1990s, and I think we're of a certain age, you know, there's yeah. optimism about the internet. Um, and like I mean, I have told this story on this podcast before. <laughs> no, it was like I was like, what are people gonna be doing in the 21st century on the internet? And I remember like in 1995 being like an 18-year-old and thinking, Oh my god, they're just gonna read so many books. Like all the books are gonna be out there, and you should just sit there and read the books, and you should like read the books over and over again. So what are people doing in 2023? They're screaming at each other on the internet. They're watching retarded TikToks and yes. porn. Okay. Yep. Now, in hindsight, all of this makes sense. I mean, I was not thinking clearly about <laughs> what like a lot of bandwidth would bring. <laughs> um, yes, people were not going to be reading Shakespeare with their bandwidth. Okay, I got it. I got it. Um, so, you know, that's what I think about where it's like, oh, 
Like I had this image of the internet and it was just a bigger library. <laughs> and that is not what people wanted. So in terms of like when you see warfare today uh, compared to the year 2000, you know, I mean, what 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 is what surprises you and what doesn't surprise you? Uh, the, the transformation that happened with with warfare, um, it, it's it has to do a lot with the uniqueness of of, of America's position in the world. Uh, another country that that lacked our our economic and and military primacy could not have done so many stupid things. Uh, and persisted in doing them without that economic surplus behind it. Um, so what we essentially did was we took a we took a military that was essentially still in reduced size a Cold War military um, and changed it into largely a heavy land-based constabulary force to do counterinsurgency uh, and small wars type fighting to deal with Islamist <clears throat> deal with Islamist irregulars. And this is supplemented by counterterrorism strikes. And we began seeing, actually, you mentioned drones. You, you began seeing the shift from cruise missiles, which are inordinately expensive. I think to tomahawks are a couple million a copy to predator drones of the big, large flying platforms. Um, and of course, these these drones, you know, AI was not advanced, and and people have, you know, moral scruples about about letting a machine have autonomous killing authority. We could do it now. It was just, do we want to do that and have the legal consequences and moral political consequences of doing that? Someone will do it, and the less powerful you are, or the less responsible you are, the more likely it's, you know, it's probably going to be a non-state actor or a small, a small regime that will will do that for the first time and because just allow it to indiscriminately kill whatever is comes into its path until it runs out of ammunition. But we've transformed into a heavy land-based counterinsurgency force. And, and now we are trying to shift gears again and become a high-tech, long-range fires force designed to um, undertake, you know, a deterrence of China, which is a very strong peer competitor. And the Marines are actually doing a really good job of it. Um, the Marines are, are far ahead of the other services in making this transformation. Um, it was, and it was bitter, um, inside debate inside the Marine Corps, but they have actually gotten to the point now where when we war game a conflict with China, um, over Taiwan, the United States is no longer consistently losing these war games. So, and we were. Um, that's kind of what shook up the military. Is is about three years ago we were losing every war game. Oh, in wow. every, yeah. Um, so uh, one of the biggest changes is 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 we now have a peer competitor that is in many ways stronger than either Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union ever was relative to the United States because its economy is two-thirds the size of the United States. And yeah. It, yeah. And so I mean, you know, you have an outline of the questions. This is actually pretty much what I wanted to ask you about. So just again, I have some younger listeners, you know. Um, so you know, on my Substack, I have podcasts and I have written stuff. Um, I have taken surveys. Believe it or not, 
the average age of the people that focus on the text is higher than the people that listen to the podcast. So I'm just going to put that out there just candidly. So I know that the age is a little, a little younger. Um, so I, you know, I'm just going to go back to the late 1990s, um, you know, 1999, uh, the best year in the history of the world, maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was Bill Clinton and we didn't know he was a rapist and uh, he was having fun and, you know, Russia was our poodle. Um, China was still eager. I mean, you remember those days, yes. you know, not, not a worry of the world. Um, so, you know, know it was very yeah, yeah, it was very, you know, and again, like we thought the internet was going to be the information super highway, not the, uh, not the adult, <laughs> adult superstore. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> you know, we should have we should have really kind of known that because I don't know if you're are you old enough to remember you would not.